0: As we begin our series through the Heidelberg Catechism, let us begin this evening with an introduction. And for this reason, turn with me to Proverbs chapter 22. Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 28. Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 28, one single verse. But nevertheless, God's holy word. Do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. Do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. Thus, the reading of God's holy word, may the Lord add his blessing to the preaching thereof. Congregation, the church order of the United Reformed Churches in North America, says in its Article 40 on catechetical preaching, At one of the services each Lord's Day, the minister shall ordinarily preach the word as summarized in the three forms of unity with special attention given to the Heidelberg Catechism, by treating its Lord's days in sequence. Now, while this is a well-known practice and tradition in our churches, I am not sure how many of us are actually able to biblically defend such a practice. There are even Christians, as you might know, who deny the need for catechisms and confessions Altogether, And therefore, it is very important for us to clarify these questions in our own mind before we dive into the material of the great Heidelberg Catechism. We will have three points this evening. The first one is, do not move the ancient landmark, the importance of doctrinal orthodoxy. Secondly, why we need confessions. And thirdly, the history of the Heidelberg Catechism. I hope you excuse, I'm not a very good three-point writer. But it will do as far as the content is concerned. I'm more concerned with the content than making those three points kind of rhyme or something. The first one is the importance of doctrinal orthodoxy. Do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have said, we just read in Proverbs. The admonition which is stated here refers to the habit of fallen men to seek personal gain through dishonesty. Now, this particular verse, in its most narrow sense, especially protects the weak in Israel, especially the uh, widows, and orphans, the oppressed in Israel. And it warns everybody, God warns everybody, not to do any funny business by moving the stones of the boundaries of their uh, little land in order to increase their own. So that was the primary meaning of this passage. It was a reminder that the law of God does not allow it, and God does not Appreciate it. But the principle taught here goes even further, as it also refers to the propensity of fallen men to neglect the wisdom of preceding generations just because they seem to be ancient or old or antiquated, and therefore, automatically, seemingly, they are considered wrong. C.S. Lewis, the great writer, called such a mindset chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery, what a fitting description of this mindset that considers everything that is old automatically bad or wrong. How often in our society even do we hear people argue that something is supposedly wrong because it is labeled as ancient or archaic or outdated that seemed to be the end of the argument well that's outdated, that's old and that's automatically then considered wrong or bad or inferior but sometimes it is true that we learn new things that improve on older discoveries or findings, especially in fields like technology or medicine but very often it is not so And yet, the argument that something is old is often enough for us to think that something is automatically bad or wrong. And sadly, this phenomenon also exists in theology, where it is especially dangerous. Chronological snobbery often seeks to adapt theology to whatever culture is predominant in a certain time or area of the world. As we are, for example, currently bombarded by the neo Marxist so called social justice movement as it creeps into the church. And so many have already fallen over. So many have already bowed their knees before this idol, just not having to fight the good fight, just not to be, just not to have to stand against the spirit of the age. They have bowed their knees and walked along. Well, this is nothing new. Even at the time of the apostles, heretics were trying to alter the very gospel of Jesus Christ and to infiltrate the church with false doctrines. For example, the so-called Judaizers, which I have mentioned before as they creeped into the young churches of Galatia and sought to spread another gospel, which, of course, was no gospel at all. They tried to convince the young churches uh, with uh, uh, Gentiles in them that in order to become Christians, they first have to become Jews, that the man have to be circumcised, that they have to keep the Jewish feast days and dietary laws and ceremonial laws before they could even consider becoming Christians. And that clearly was a false gospel, Another gospel, as Paul says in Galatians, which is no gospel at all. Then you had the Gnostics with the amalgamation of Christian elements, with Persian, Jewish, Egyptian, and Greek thought. Mixing it all together, mixing the current cultures, the last fat of the day, with a little bit of Christianity, as it seems, in order to please the world and to please themselves and to please their bellies, as Paul says. In the first millennium, after the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the young church had to deal with heresy after heresy after heresy, and they had to constantly correct false doctrines. And the church often did that by way of ecumenical church councils. In later times, these councils, these gatherings of the leaders of the churches, of the elders and ministers of these churches, were called synods. As we have, for example, the synod of Dort, who had to deal with the heresies of Jacob Arminius, and did so successfully so that we still use the canons of Dort in order to prevent us from these heresies. These councils or synods had to deal with the heresies in the, in the history of the church, with which the church was constantly confronted, and they had to come to a conclusion. And when they had come to a conclusion or to a judgment about these heresies, they would have to send out letters to all the churches and to tell them what judgment they have passed, because in the multitude of counselors there is good counsel. The first one in the New Testament we find in the book of Acts in chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council, that dealt with the aforementioned Judaizers and their their Jewish legalistic gospel, which was no gospel at all. But there were several councils in the first millennium of the New Testament church, just to mention two of the most important ones, the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., It produced the famous Nicene Creed and its defense of the deity of Christ against the heresy of Arianism. And then the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD, where the church not only had to defend the two natures of Christ against the so-called monophysites, but also they had to stand up against the Nestorians, who falsely said that since Christ had two natures, he must also have two persons. Constantly these heresies were fired against the church, and the church would not budge. They would meet together, they would look at this, and they would look at Scripture, and they would boldly defend the church against these doctrines. A week ago I preached to you about the importance of the office of elder and how they are to defend the flock against all enemies, including doctrinal enemies. We have to defend the church against false doctrines because there are assaults on the Christian life. they are assaults on our very salvation. And it is not the loving way to do nothing. It is not the kind way to just let it slide. In fact, this is a horrible way. It shows no love at all for the people of God and no love for God. For those elders who love God and those elders who truly love their flock, they will every time stand up and defend the flock against false doctrines. They will risk being ostracized. They will risk being called legalistic. They will risk being put on the fringes of even their own churches just because they love the flock so much and speak the truth and defend them before God from all assaults of the evil one and the world. So many heresies have come, and on and on it went throughout church history. Heresies were thrown at the church, and the church had to defend the truth for the sake of God's glory and for the sake of the well-being of God's people. But now we have to ask the obvious question. Why does the church go through the pains of keeping doctrine absolutely pure? Why are we not to allow the landmark to be moved that our fathers have set? It is very easy to let things slide in the culture that is terrified of confrontation. I remember and I wasn't sure if I should tell you this, but I will just do it. When I was in seminary, I had a good friend who is also a minister now in the state of Georgia. And at a certain time in seminary, we thought We're getting tired of all this theology. We want to have more Christ. And so one certain day we played hooky, and we didn't attend a a biblical theology class. And we went to a café, and we talked about the sweetness of Jesus Christ, which in and of itself is a good thing, but not while you should be in a seminary class. And in God's providence... We were caught in the cafe afterwards exactly by the professor whose, uh, whose class we should have attended. And we talked with him and we were quite cocky. You know, in seminary you think you know everything. You've got it all figured out. It takes about six months in the ministry. You find yourself in the fetal position and understand you know nothing. And the professor came and, we to- and he said, why were you not in class? Why are you sitting in the cafe? Professor Wilborn, the good man, And my friend smiled in his face and he said, we wanted the dose of Christ. And we thought we had him. What we tried to say or what he tried to say was, we are tired of all this theology. We want Christ. Two words crushed us. He looked at us and he smiled and he said, which Christ? Immediately we know what he was saying. He meant, without theology, you don't know anything about Christ. Without theology, you don't know anything about the Christian life. Without l- knowing the facts of theology, you will know nothing about God. I never forgot it. I don't think I ever played hooky again afterwards. And this is what we need to understand as we so often think that letting those doctrinal questions slide and not taking doctrine seriously, that we're doing a good thing and we're drawn closer to Jesus Christ, as we're not. So here's the answer to our question. Why does the church go through the pains of keeping doctrine poor? And in line with Professor uh, uh, Wilborn's two words, the answer is, because without doctrine there is no life. Without doctrine there is no sanctification. Without doctrine, there is no proper worship, and without doctrine, there is nothing. 2 Peter verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 2 reminds us that salvation and spiritual growth come through the knowledge of God. As it says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Again in verse 3 of uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. His divine power has granted to us all the things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Of course, some would object and say, Well, knowledge, cognitive knowledge is not everything. Well, I'm not talking about cognitive knowledge alone. We have talked about this in Proverbs that only cognitive knowledge of God does nothing for us in and of itself. But it is the necessary beginning. Without cognitive knowledge, there is no experiential knowledge. Without knowing, there is no living. Without knowing about God, there is no knowing of God. We cannot know God experientially without first knowing the content of his self-revelation. That's the very reason why he gave us the book. I'm getting goosebumps sometimes when people say well I don't need all this theology and I don't need all this bible or I need all this I don't need the book of revelation I don't need this and that and the other I just need Christ. This is the same mistake that my friend and I made at that cafe that one morning in South Carolina. Without doctrine there is no life. Therefore we are called Countless times in God's holy word to guard the true doctrine. Titus chapter 1 verse 9, for example, which talks about the qualifications of elders and ministers, would fit right into last week's AM service, where it says, He must, he the elder or minister candidate, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Again, in Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, as a warning for ministers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And for all of us, Romans chapter 16, verses 17 through 18. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. 2 John chapter 1, verses 9 through 11 Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. That's how serious the Bible is against false doctrine, Or false teachers. And as you can clearly see, we are charged to protect the sound doctrine in our hearts as well as in our churches. Of course, then you have these self-appointed apostles of love, or whatever you want to call them. uh, When they say, love unites, but doctrine divides. Who has not heard that uh, saying and liberals do this all the time. They always go onto the emotional side of things and try to undermine the doctrinal side of things. They appeal to love and to charity while attacking sound doctrine themselves. I have three things to say to that. First of all, the easiest one this statement is a doctrine in and of itself. It is self-contradictory. It's a self-contradictory statement because it is in, in conflict with itself. You're basically putting out a doctrine against doctrine, saying love unites and doctrine divides. That's a doctrine. What you're basically saying is only my doctrine. It's a sleight of hand. Take only my doctrine. Yours is bad. Secondly, The term love here obviously doesn't presume a biblical understanding of love, which is never separated from the truth. You can never talk about love in the biblical sense if you separate it from the truth. So this is what liberals, theological liberals, do all the time. They try to appeal to love and charity and to kindness and all these warm and fuzzy feelings while they spit into the Bible. And they try to take away from us the proper understanding of God and of his word. Thirdly, and this is the toughest for us to take, to be honest, who says that division and conflict is always a bad thing? You might want to ask Luther when you come into heaven and ask him whether they, all the conflict, whether all the division, whether all this strife was worth it. You might also ask the Apostle Paul, and if you get a chance, ask the Lord Jesus Christ. Who has ever said that conflict in and of itself is a bad thing? In our society, we're so addicted to harmony that we think if there's conflict or division, it's automatically bad. And the one who causes it, even if he carries the truth, is automatically the aggressor. That is a very dangerous mindset, and it's idolatry in and of itself. Seemingly, we have become so afraid of conflict and this longing for harmony. It has become somewhat of an idol for us. We seem to prefer to abandon God's truth rather than enduring division or conflict. Now, how kind and how loving is that? Sometimes we act as if we had the right to rub off the edges of God's word, as it were, and to make concessions to the world in order for us to be received. And then it says, I'm just trying to be wise. I'm just trying to be winsome. Well, is it worth it? Betraying the word of God? Cutting off its edges, as it were. Is that really your motive to do God a favor? Wouldn't God have known what his word says? Wouldn't he have the right and he alone to cut off the edges, if there were any? Jesus himself In Luke chapter 12, says this about what the gospel will do in this world. From verse 51. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three, They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ has to say to our fear of conflict because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's what the Word of God says about itself. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper, than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart? Does this sound like harmony to you? Does the description of the Christian life anywhere sound like a smooth ride to you? Does any description of being a follower of Christ give any indication that the Christian life is smooth sailing? I don't know where we have this from. When will we stand up against heresy? When will we stand up against the influence of this world? When will we stand up against the attacks of false teachers? If we are silent, we are complicit. You see the Bible doesn't get tired to impress unto us the importance of sound doctrine. Conflict or division or not, And that leads us exactly to our next point. Why we need confessions. Why even have confessional documents? Why not just the Bible or no creed but Christ as we sometimes hear? It surely sounds pious and it sounds wise. But these statements aren't logical statements to say no creed but Christ or no uh, confession but the Bible, are not correct. These statements themselves are already creeds. If you say no creed but Christ, that's a creed. It's a very short one, but it's a creed, because this verse is not to be found in the Bible, no creed but Christ. It's a creed concerning the doctrine of Revelation. And also, no creed but Christ, the Jehovah's Witnesses say the same thing. Countless cults say the same thing. No creed but Christ, no confession but the Bible, they all say it. So why are we not all one singing together in in great unity in Jesus Christ? Because the human mind is fallen. The human mind is sinful. The human mind often doesn't understand the things of God. So if we just say we believe the Bible or no confession but the Bible, the logical next question is, what do you believe the Bible teaches? And the answer to this question is our creeds and confessions. Every office holder in the URCNA has to subscribe to the three forms of unity. You saw it last week. We wouldn't let them go the new office holders, before they sign, that they agree with all these three forms of unity and they will defend them. We, more than anyone, hold to sola scriptura and tota scriptura, scripture alone and all of scripture. We lay it open in written form to the best of our understanding and we say, look, everybody, it's on our website. You want to know what we believe? In the United Reformed Churches, look at our confessions. This is what we believe. We're absolutely transparent, and transparency is a wonderful thing for a Christian person. Before you come in here, look at our confessions, look at our catechism, look what we teach and what we believe. We lay it open in written form. So in a sense, the confession is the bible as far as it represents the teachings of the bible properly now i know this is a, a a kind of a dangerous saying because they are still subordinate standards they are not the confessions are not on the same level with the bible but we have to understand that the teaching of the three forms of unity to the best of our understanding is the teaching of the Bible, the difference is, we would never change the Bible. But we would. If you really found something that is not in accord with the Scripture, after much prayer and much searching, we would be open of changing uh, the three forms of unity. and it has been done in the past, very early on. And if you're shocked by this, I have to tell you, a sermon is not much different. It prayerfully takes the word of God expounds it and applies it to the people of God as the Word of God. In this respect, the preaching of the Word is the Word of God as much or as long as it expounds the Word of God faithfully and truthfully. Independent Bible churches, with their no creed but Christ motto, are utterly inconsistent. When you walk into these churches, you could try the following. Go into an independent Bible church that says no creed but Christ, and then say, would you baptize my baby, please? And they say, no, we don't do that here. Well, who says that? Well, we all say that. Oh, so you do have a creed, it's just not written down. Or you tell them and say, you know, uh, you know, I'm an amillennialist or I'm a postmillennialist or whatever you are of the two. It's the only two that remotely make sense. And they say, no, 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 no. We're dispensationalists here. And there's a dispensationalist. Well, let me get a concordance and, and look where I find the term dispensational. Well, there we see that's what we believe, and, and we say, okay, so you do have a creed. It's just oral. You just haven't written it down, which is okay, but it's more safe to write things down. Because then everybody can see them, and everybody knows what we believe, and our office holders can give vows on these three forms of unity. But then they often such churches often accuse us of abandoning the bible because we have written confessions. We have written confessions for transparency's sake. That everybody knows what they're signing up for and every office holder knows what he needs to defend if he can even do this according to his conscience. If he can't he cannot be an office holder here. That's transparency. We're not saying that everybody who doesn't hold to the three forms of unity completely is not a believer. We're just saying that's what we understand the Bible to teach. We need confessions and catechisms in order to clarify for us and for generations to come what we believe the Bible teaches. We must take doctrine seriously, as we are called in Jude, verse 3, to contend earnestly for the faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints. Now, to have confessions is one thing, but why in the world do we preach through them? Well, here are the reasons. Through catechism preaching we receive a systematic presentation of the body of doctrine once delivered to the saints. In the morning, we preach through the text of the Bible in an expository way, and in the evening, we put it all systematically together. Systematically means, for example, when we uh, hear about the Word of God, we preach topically about the Word of God and everything that the Bible says about itself. If we preach through the Bible in in an expository way, there is here and there a passage that talks about the Word of God. But every once in a while, we are made in a way that we systematize knowledge. We have files in our mind, and we have to put knowledge in these files and understanding into these files. And some work better in a systematic way, others more in in an expository way. We provide both. In a systematic way, you can quicker study a body of doctrine. In an expository way, there is other emphasis. And some are concerned about catechism preaching because the catechism is not the Bible, which is true, of course. The catechisms, the three forms of unity, or the Westminster Standards for Presbyterians, are subordinate standards. They're below Word of God. They're below the Bible in our church order as well. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're wrong at any point. We must not have a truncated view of the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. If I ask you, is the doctrine of the Trinity inspired? You would all say yes. But I say, I didn't just I didn't quote the Bible. How can it be an inspired doctrine? Because it's not only the words that are inspired, it's the doctrines in the Bible that are inspired. Is the fact that Jesus Christ is God an inspired doctrine? Of course. But I didn't quote the Bible verse. We extracted it from the Bible and found out that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then we put a whole article in the Belgian Confession, for example, who Jesus Christ is, and we have it all together. And all these passages teach us that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, that doesn't make the three forms of unity equal with the Bible, but the doctrines we teach, the best of our understanding, are biblical doctrine. And therefore, I have no bad conscience whatsoever to preach through the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, or the Canons of Dort. We need confessions, not because Scripture is unclear, but because our mind is fallen. It's not that the Bible is ambiguous, it's our minds, it's the effects of the fall that we still fight against. And therefore, we often have problems interpreting the Scripture. Not so much when it comes to the core of the Gospel, but when it comes to some other doctrines. Our mind is fallen, the word is clear and therefore we need help and we need the the uh, multitude of counselors of learned counselors to help us to understand the scriptures catechism preaching will strengthen both our understanding of truth as well as our unity as we read in Amos chapter 3 verse 3 can two walk together unless they are agreed that function is our three forms of unity. We are agreed. That's what we believe. And if somebody walks in here and tries to wreak havoc uh, with false doctrines, we pretty quickly uh, will have him in the consistory room. And we will tell him what you're teaching here is in conflict, what we are agreed upon. And if he tries to start a big debate whether this is biblical, we say No. You have agreed to these three forms of unity, and we have agreed to these three forms of unity. That's why they called the three forms of unity. We are united in them. Now, if you have a legitimate concern, speak with us elders. We will bring it to classes. Classes will bring it to synod, and then let the multitude of the brothers decide and find out and be transparent about what they find out so we can learn. And that's what's called a synod or a church council. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, a house divided against itself will not stand. Confessions bring unity to the church of Jesus Christ. Biblically sound confessions and catechisms help us keep the sound doctrine throughout the generations. They help us to keep unity and peace. Not a cheap unity, not a cheap peace, but unity and peace in truth or based on the truth. So now we know basically what confessions and catechisms are because all that we just heard we can actually retrace in the history of the Heidelberg Catechism. Short history, don't be afraid. We will see all that realized in the short history of the Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism was composed in Heidelberg, Germany, not in the Netherlands, in Heidelberg, Deutschland, at the request of the elector of the so-called Palatinate, Frederick III. In the wake of the Reformation, Frederick had become a Protestant. First he was more Lutheran-minded, but he more and more became Reformed. And in order to... Promote the reformed understanding of Scripture in his Palatinate. He commissioned the 28 year old Zacharias Ursinus, who was a professor at Heidelberg University, and 26 year old Caspar Olevianus, who was Frederick's court preacher. Those two were called to uh, create a catechism for the Christians in Heidelberg, for the health of their souls, as Frederick said it, to instruct the youth, that was his reason, to instruct the youth and to guide and unite all the pastors and preachers, and thereby all of his territory in matters of doctrine, faith, and life. Now, Ursinus... The 20-year-old professor, he bore the primary responsibility, and Olivianus, known for his eloquence, functioned mainly as an editor of the final version of the Heidelberg Catechism. And that's why we speak with Frederick III of the learning of Orsinus and the eloquence of Olivianus. It has to be added at this point that many others also provided assistance in the creation of these Heidelberg Catechisms and in perfecting the Catechism's final reading. And it is actually the fourth edition of the Heidelberg Catechism that has become the official text of it. The text that we have today is the fourth edition. And that's a good thing. I told you, people don't just sit down, write a confession, and then we run uh, with it for the next 500 years. It was read and reread, it was studied from synod to synod. And then when we had the fourth edition, everybody said, "Yes, amen. That's what the Bible teaches. And that's what you have in your forms and prayers. The fourth edition of the Heidelberg Catechism. And it was approved by the Synod of Heidelberg in 1563. And it has served Christ's church very well ever since then. And as you know, it is divided in 52 Lord's days might be interesting for you to know that it wasn't always so. The division into 52 Lord's Days came later. And it is structured after the book of Romans, or I would say it is structured after the Christian life, isn't it? It begins with a short introduction in Lord's Day 1, and then it goes right away dealing with the misery or with the guilt of the fallen sinner in Lord's Days 2 through 4. So it deals with our guilt with the fallen state, just like the letter to the Romans. And then it shows us what the deliverance of this guilt, of this hopeless situation is in Lord's Day 5 through 31. That's the deliverance or grace. And then from Lord's Day 32 through 52 is a long chapter, a long part, that many, many Christians tend to forget, and that's gratitude. It's now that we have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. How shall we serve you? And that's such a long part of the Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism contains more proof texts than any other catechism of its time. It is more subjective than objective. It's more personal than it is objective, more personal than doctrinal. And that's why the Heidelberg Catechism is even called by Presbyterians the warmest of all catechisms. It talks to you uh, in a personal conversation, not just in doctrinal terms in the third person. It approaches you in the second person. It talks to you like a father talks to her son. It has therefore been called the Book of Comfort for a long time, by God's people. And Lord willing, we will dive into this Heidelberg Catechism beginning next week in order to tap into that comfort that it holds for us from the Word of God and in order to make sure that we do not move the ancient landmark that our fathers have set. May God help us. Amen. Let us pray. Our most merciful Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have upheld your church since the time of the apostles, and that you have given us the ability and the instruction to have and to hold our good confession, that we had the man and the instruments to have them, and that they represent the teaching of your word so faithfully, the best that we can judge. And we ask you, Lord, that we give these three forms of unity the right place in our lives and that they will always be subordinate standards, subordinate to the very word of our God. And we ask you, Lord, to guide us through this series that your name be glorified and your people be edified. Be with us and help us for the glory of your name and for the good of your church. In Jesus' name we pray.